Behind the scenes of all of our favorite spaceflight events are the leaders that help to shape those missions and programs. This week, we're going to talk a little bit more about leadership. And to help us with this, I interviewed Elizabeth Howe, who just released a book that she co-authored with retired Canadian astronaut Dr. Dave Williams, called Leadership Moments from NASA, Achieving the Impossible. And we'll do our best to put you up to date with all the happenings in space this week. We've got three more people up there to talk about. And if you want to make sure that you receive a new episode from us every week, please make sure you've hit the follow or subscribe button on your podcast provider. And why not leave us a review while you're at it? But right now, please enjoy episode 43 of the Space and Things podcast. You're listening to Space and Things with Dave Giles and Emily Carney. I'm Emily Carney. And I'm Dave Giles, and welcome to episode 43. How are you doing, Emily? I'm doing good. I'm back at my uh, day job again, which is, I, I was I was working from home, and now I'm back there physically in person, so it's a, it's a little different. I'm getting used to it, but interesting times, and in a few weeks, we'll be back at a, I'll be back at events again, which is kind of nice. It's just very strange. Yeah, I, I've actually got a wedding gig this Saturday, believe it or not. Not not full-blown dancey party. We're only allowed to play background music. <laughs> We're not allowed to sing anywhere near the guests. But still, it's weird. I'm going to be playing music with other people, which is, is very odd. It's very odd, but I'm looking forward to it. That's awesome. I haven't done it since September. I hope I remember how to do it. Yeah, I'm starting to try to prepare for like social stuff now, and I'm like, how am I going to act around people, man? Am I going to just act like a, uh, I, I don't know. I don't know yeah. how to act anymore. <laughs> like I went, I went to work on Monday and every, and I walked in and everybody's like, woo. And I'm like, what the, he- how do I even act? You know, I don't even know. <laughs> I just smiled. I was like, Hey, I'm back. How you doing? So yeah, I have no idea. Yeah, I, I've got to learn how to use a microphone all over again live. It's going to be fun. Anyway, we'll, we'll be, we'll be fine. We'll be fine. Uh, but let's get, let's get on with this episode, shall we? Yes, let's get on with it. Okay, we're off to a good start, Flight Cool. Okay, you may remember that back on episode 24, a whole 19 episodes ago, we were joined by Elizabeth Howe and Nicholas Booth, who had just released an excellent book called The Search for Life on Mars, the greatest scientific detective story of all time. Well, Elizabeth has been very busy and has co-written and released yet another book. This time it's called Leadership Moments from NASA, Achieving the Impossible. And it's co-written with retired Canadian astronaut Dr. Dave Williams. He was also the former director of Space and Life Sciences at NASA. So the book goes through the history of NASA and the highlights of leaders and how they shaped what happened and how they responded to events as they unfolded and what actions they took to continue to improve the administration. And it uses these events and stories to teach greater lessons about leadership, which can be applied to other situations. Earlier today, Dave spoke to Elizabeth to find out more about the book and how she ended up working with Dr. Williams. Hey, Tom, I don't like the way that O2 pressure's going down. If you want to do something about these other reactant valves, let's make up our mind. 
Hi, Elizabeth. Thank you so much for joining us once again. Um, so I've been reading this this new book, this wonderful new book, and I really am loving it uh, and learning a great deal as well. This time you've co-written with Canadian astronaut Dr. Dave Williams, who flew to space on STS-90 and STS-118. So how did the two of you end up writing a book together and why did you choose to focus on leadership? Well, it was about a year ago. So back when the world was shutting down, so to speak, and uh, just around that time, I was finishing up my uh, another Canadian book that I've written. And it was a history of the Canadian space program, essentially called Canada Army Collaboration. And so Dave was very kindly reviewing his section and he also offered to do the introduction. And so to do the introduction of a book, for those who've never done that kind of thing before, you want to read the whole thing. You want to make sure that you know what the book is all about, right? And so <laughs> yeah. for the first time, he began to go through the entire thing, all that I had been writing about, about all the people that flown into space. So Chris Hadfield, Julie Payette, you know, Mark Arno, all those people. And so then he reached out to me. He said, Elizabeth, I'd like to have another conversation with you. And I thought he might have some additional corrections or ideas or whatever. And then he said, actually, I have all of these other uh, space book ideas that I've been working on since the other ones I've done, because he's written something like five books now. Wow. He's done an autobiography and he's done a series of children's books with another co-author. And he said, uh, what would you think about these? And so we began to talk it over and we really felt that the time was right to address leadership among the various ideas that he had done. And it's because we really felt then, and our experience has borne that out now in the next year, that NASA is embarking on something new and incredible, which is trying to get to the moon with the Artemis program. And they're also going to be doing it much differently than Apollo. So Apollo was an incredible program of its day. And of course, we can talk about why in a few minutes. But what's interesting about this newer program, Artemis, is they're going to be going from an international collaboration from the beginning. And so countries all over the world are participating in this program, including those that may not necessarily be space nations yet, which is really cool. And then the other thing that we thought was really neat about it is that they're going to be inviting private companies to sort of go alongside them. So they're not just saying you do this. They're saying we have these ideas. We want to get landers and rovers and other kinds of experiments on the moon. How, as a private company, do you think you can help us? It's far more open than in the past. Mm. And so as we're looking ahead to these newer programs, we thought that it'd be a great idea to kind of think, how did we get here? What kind of things got leaders going in the past and how can we take those principles and bring them on into the future? And moreover, how would a business audience really appreciate this? Because it's not just about space. You know this, right? Like stuff yeah. we learned in space also really helps in business and other fields. And so that was really how the collaboration came about. And I feel so lucky because he is a good leader in himself, right? <laughs> yeah. Do you know what? I really like how this book isn't just another space book. Although obviously it's telling the story of NASA and spaceflight, this is a book aimed at anyone who's interested in leadership. So there is a bullet point summary at the end of each chapter, which highlights the lessons learned from within the leadership lessons learned from within the story that you've just read. So some of these are obvious, but they're not always. And I love that. And it got me thinking, why do more books not have bullet point summaries at the end? It was so useful. So when you were writing and researching this book, what was the greatest lesson that you learned? And was there someone you didn't know much about who ended up inspiring you and becoming a leadership example for you? 
Well, I'll take that second question first. And so I would say that one of the unsung heroes of the program is George Abbey. And so he ended up being one of Dave's uh, managers throughout Dave's long history at NASA as well, because Dave was not only an astronaut, he also worked in senior management. He, he was responsible for a health sciences unit and other things as well. He also has, you know, done underwater work. And so Dave really picked up a lot of his stuff from George Abbey. And Abbey was really one of those people who was appearing to be working in the background, but he's one of those really smart folks who knows how to make the wheels turn. He knows how to kind of get other people to be working with him for the benefit of the program. And I think that that's really a powerful mode of leadership because you're giving people ownership. Um, I myself am a teacher. I often work in a classroom and I find that when I'm working with that kind of 18 to 25 group, that's what I tend to work with and sometimes a bit older, the better you're going to do in the classroom will be linked to having children and teenagers and also adults taking ownership of their learning and trying to make it kind of relate to what works for their own experiences. And this works just as well for any management situation. I mean, when you think about NASA and you also think about a successful startup, often what happens is that they say, hey, we have problems to solve. What do you think are the best ways of doing it? And the employees will actually come out with their own thoughts and they will kind of take the bid as to speak and to run with it. And I think that that's sort of an incredible way of doing it. Like you're there, you're providing guidance, you're providing some structure maybe from time to time. But if you let the person take ownership and they're actually going to actually own the project, right? And that's uh, mm -hmm. fundamental. And then I missed your first question. That was the second. So, so the first one was, what was the greatest lesson that you learned? Huh. Um, the greatest lesson that I learned actually was to sit back and absorb. Um, another really unsung hero, which is sort of going back into the Apollo program, was Glenn Money. And he was a fellow that was working in mission control. And it was at the same time as Gene Kranz. And so Gene Kranz is that guy in the movie Apollo 13 who was all failure is not an option and really fiery and wearing the, uh, the white vest. And he was just a great movie character as well as obviously a real life person. And Glenn Lunny had a very different style. It wasn't so much command from the top. It was, again, that kind of background, let the other people kind of figure out where to go. And he'll be there still, but kind of jumping in from time to time, providing a lot of context. And the interesting thing about Glenn Lunny is that when he came into the Apollo 13 situation, there'd been an explosion. There was a lot of chaos, obviously, as much as Mission Control was trying to fix it. He was the one who actually came down and began to go through the list and say, we need to do this, we need to do this, we need to do this, we need to get this person on the team, we need to get that person on the team. And so he actually was one of the behind the scenes organizers that was sort of not recognized so much in uh, past Apollo 13 stuff. And that was a huge lesson learned for me because I've read so much Apollo 13 stuff. I saw the movie, that's how I got interested, you know, 25 yeah, years ago. <laughs> and um, this was one of the people who was not talked about so much as Gene Kranz and the astronauts and some of the other people. So. It was amazing. It was just all a big learning experience for me too. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's translated because it's also been a huge learning experience for me reading it. For example, I'm really grateful that you put in a summary about Keith Glennon in the first chapter. He's someone I don't know too much about, and I've been trying to figure out what his role was for quite a while now, but he was the first NASA administrator, and I should know all about him. I should know so much about what he did, but... I don't. I know the names of many of the other people you go through in this book, but his, I knew his name, but I didn't really know what he did. And he often gets overlooked, maybe because he left in January 1961 before any of the crewed missions even started. He got it set up and then he left. But his job was to do just that, was to bring all the different arms of government and all the different organisations under the same umbrella called NASA and give them a common mission. And you've 
really highlighted what this job was in that opening chapter, and I learned a hell of a lot. So obviously the book goes from those early beginnings right up to current times. Do you think there are big differences in leadership now at NASA compared to those early days when there was so much new stuff having to happen all at once? Well, one of the key challenges of NASA was that when they first formed, which was in the late 1950s, early 1960s, they were trying to deal with a number of challenges that had not been done before. And these are fundamental things like, can we get a person up in space? That's fundamental. Today, we just do it, I wouldn't say without thinking, that's the wrong way of framing it, but it's not something that the public appreciates as much because everything has matured to an extent that wasn't available back then. And so what they had to do was implement, I would call it in today's terms, cross-disciplinary thinking because they had to think about how are we going to surmount this fundamental challenge of getting a person up there and also figuring out how to safely communicate with him. Unfortunately, it was always him back then, but we'll get into that maybe a bit later. And um, trying to figure out how to stay in touch, how to keep him safe, what kind of systems were needed, what kind of information was needed. You didn't want to overwhelm him. You didn't want to overwhelm mission control. So what was the bare minimum? So some of the things that they were pulling from was the military. That's why so many of the early folks were hired from then. And that was not only the astronauts, but it also was in large part the people that made up mission control because they already knew about dealing with procedures. They already knew about dealing with emergencies. They already knew about working with contractors because a lot of it too was bringing in contractors that had a lot of experience in building complicated systems like say an aircraft, right? Mm. Or a submarine, you wanna get those types of people in there, safety minded as well. Another thing that was really fundamental to that era was thinking about the World War II situation because World War II really taught a lot about management of big projects. And so kind of leaving aside the combat, which is a whole different thing, you had the situation where you had to be implementing on a large scale, people moving into other countries, uh, trying to get supplies out there, troops, trying to manage people in foreign territories. And these were all things that really helped also in space exploration because space, when you think about it, is trying to get supplies and people, not troops, thankfully, but people out to foreign territories, which is out into space. And so some of those logistic questions really helped, even though we were in sort of a new bubble or a new space. And so I think that when you ask the question about how NASA today might be a little bit different than back then, we know a lot of this stuff now. Again, I'm not saying it's perfect, and I'm not saying that, you know, we didn't, we're doing something completely different, but back then it was all so new that we had to build this from the ground up. And now we have systems and people and ideas in place to kind of keep on going and Mm. to think of newer ideas in that sense. Yeah, of course. Uh, Now, earlier you mentioned that the Artemis program is going to be bringing other countries and organizations into it to work together. But one of the other things I learned from the opening chapter of this book that I didn't know about was that Bob Gilroof went headhunting in Canada immediately as the Space Task Group was set up back in 1958 and employed 25 top engineers out of a Canadian program to make sure they had the best people working for NASA. I had no idea about this. So obviously I didn't know that the Germans, there were some Germans involved, but this whole idea of collaboration between countries and bringing people in, it's, it's not a new thing, is it? No, exactly. A lot of people, when they look at international, they're thinking about the formation of the International Space Station Program, or maybe Space Station Freedom a little bit before that. Or maybe they're really thinking Apollo-Soyuz, which is sort of the 1970s. Now, what happened with Canada was they they saw an opportunity and they came up and they tried to, in a good way, take advantage of it. So what had happened here (laughs) was, you remember I was speaking about the military and about how that was showing you how to work with complex systems, safety systems, etc. And so we were developing up here in Canada, I'm Canadian, 
um, a program called the Avro Arrow, and it was going to be an advanced jet fighter, essentially. And then what happened was due to a series of political and technological hurdles, the program actually ended up being cancelled. And rather suddenly, you know, to the extent that people had mortgages and had to kind of figure out how to fix that very quickly. And so when that program was cancelled, all of a sudden there were all of these very talented, very innovative aerospace engineers that were thrown out of work. And so NASA was saying, we need aerospace engineers. Where are we going to go? You know, yeah. So that's why they came up here, because they were trying to get the best and the brightest to come down. And so there's a few people out there. Um, that say that because of these Canadian engineers that really helped propel the Apollo program forward. I don't want to make it sound like they were the only reason that they did really well, but because they had all this advanced experience and they were just available, down they came and they really ended up working in a lot of fundamental ways that helped with Mercury, Gemini, and then of course Apollo later on. And those were some of the first Canadian managers that were working in the program and they were the predecessors of people like, well, my co-author Dave Williams himself. And I think that that experience was really fundamental because it showed right from the 1960s and a bit of the 50s that you could have people coming in from other countries and bringing in different perspectives. And this could really supplement and enhance what was already being thought of in the United States because they could bring in ideas from other spots. And now we're doing that in very large measure, but that's where it really started. Yeah. Now, talking of people that perhaps don't get spoken about enough, you said earlier that most of the people involved at this early stage were men. Uh, at what point did women start to get management opportunities within NASA? I think what's interesting is those management opportunities were actually happening for a long time, but we didn't recognize them from the outside. And so I'll give you an example that has kind of been portrayed in the movies and also in a great book. It's called Hidden Figures. And mm. so very quickly, this is essentially a story about all those Black or African-American engineers that were helping at NASA in the 60s. And uh, what they were doing was they were helping. These were females. These were obviously minorities or people of color. They were trying to make sure that all the astronauts that went into space, their spacecraft trajectories were calculated appropriately. Um, and they also were, in some cases, helping them with the moon trajectories. And so they were what were called computers, um, not the computer machine, obviously, but the computer person, kind of an old fashioned term today. What ended up happening was some of those people that were actually working behind the scenes as these mathematicians or orbital trajectories, if you want to call them that, did end up eventually moving into management. Not all of them, unfortunately. NASA's headquarters was actually recently renamed after one of these people. She did not get as far as she would have wanted, but what she did was she managed to inspire the next generation coming after her to go up into management. And so I would say that actually it really began with those moments. So we had the hidden figures from the 1960s. We also had a number of female astronaut uh, tryouts that were happening in the 1960s. Those were called the Mercury 13. Mm -hmm. It didn't go again as far as they wanted, but what it did was it shone a light on the fact that women, of course, could participate. And this goes for any gender, obviously. I'm just sort of going with the history here. Yeah. And really, I would say that the more public side of when women got involved was obviously starting in Russia, the Soviet Union back then with Valentina Tereshkova, who was the, uh, the first woman up in space. But then in the 1980s, NASA brought in the first female astronauts, and then we sort of saw it go from there. Yes, we did. Now, heading forward towards the Artemis program, as we spoke about earlier, there will be greater collaboration with other countries and private enterprise right from the start. Now, do you think that this poses significant challenges that the Apollo program didn't have? Because who ends up in over control when you have all these huge egos at play? Because, you know, countries have egos too, after all. Does this become a problem? <laughs> you know what? I think that you're right. There's going to be a lot of 
pivoting to try and figure out how to do this new management structure. Now, first thing I'll say is, thankfully, we do have experience, right? The International Space Station mm -hmm. has been, what, at least a 30-year collaboration. And if we go into freedom, that's probably more like 40 years, right? Where we have all these countries working together. And sometimes they have really public spats, okay? Take a look at what happened with Russia and the United States about, what, eight years ago when uh, there was this whole trampoline discussion. Basically, the joke was this Russian official, very senior in the space program, was saying, well, you know, if you can't get your astronauts up there, I guess you're going to have to do it by trampoline because we're going to be the only ones sending you up there. Um, you don't have a space shuttle anymore. You don't have a commercial crew ready. And that was related to some sanctions in the Ukraine that he was unhappy with. And so at times there are very public spats about what to do next. But they always seem to resolve it, which is incredible. It really shows the dedication of people working behind the scenes to kind of work through these various political, technical, logistical issues, because I'd only just named one. Think yeah. about the number of times that a launch has been delayed or that supplies haven't gone up there. When uh, Scott Kelly was spending his year up in space, I think there were three or four supply ships that didn't make it up there in a row. And uh, he was saying, well, this is really going well. If you read his book, Endurance, you're going to see more about uh, how he was thinking at that time. He was not too happy, but at the same time, he was going, I'll figure out, you know, what to do next in collaboration with my crewmates. And so we can lean on that, first of all. And the second thing that I would say is that if everybody embraces Artemis as an opportunity to learn together, um, you know, probably egos will come into place from time to time. It's just the way that people are. But at the same time, if you really embrace the moon as a challenge and you're trying to think about how to benefit the program first, it's just like any other big international program, right? At times we do face challenges, whether it's the coronavirus, world hunger, uh, climate change. So again, bring in that interdisciplinary thinking and think about how different countries and different entities can get involved. And again, I really do think it comes down to taking ownership. If every company and every country in there has a little piece of it and they feel fully responsible and they're able to advise the others within that realm of responsibility, I think it does help. And uh, the other thing that helps too, I'm not a legal expert, but there are a number of frameworks that are set up. There are Artemis Accords, there are legal agreements, there's also sort of international space law custom. And so, you know, at worst, we can start to bring in some ideas from the United Nations and just from international space scholars, space law scholars to figure out what to do next. Mm. It's going to be fascinating to see how all of this pans out. So Senator Bill Nelson has just become the NASA administrator, replacing Jim Bridenstine. And we, of course, saw loads of Jim when he was in charge, and we're already seeing a fair bit of Bill, too. As I said earlier, while I did know his name, I didn't know much about the first NASA administrator, Keith Glennon. But being an Apollo enthusiast, I do know more about those who followed him, like James Webb, Tom Paine, and James Fletcher. But I'm wondering if these names and their faces were well known at the time, or has the role completely changed, particularly in regards to public relations? Do you think we see and know more about the administrators now than the public did back then? That is a really interesting question, and I'm not sure I can get that my thoughts fully out in a short time. But I think one of the bigger shifts has happened with the rise of social media in the last decade or so is that a leader not only has to be looking good on television, which sort of, you know, dates back to the Kennedy era, that whole Kennedy-Nixon debate is where mm -hmm. that really began in the early 60s. They really also have to look good in multiple types of platforms. And that's a challenge because in a sense, you almost have to be trilingual or quadrilingual in various sorts of things. You need to know how to look good on video. You need to know how to look good in tweets, on Instagram, all these other things. Now, what helps, of course, is they have very able teams of young people behind them. NASA and other agencies have always been good at employing the young, bringing in fresh ideas. You'd be shocked at the average age of people in mission control back in the day, for example, right? Mm -hmm. Those were mostly folks yeah. in their 20s. 
their 20s, right? And I'm almost in my 40s here. So I'm going, oh my goodness, right? But you did a really great job. And so if a leader, I think, is sort of open to listening to people from all ranges, all the way from their senior executives down to their juniors, I think that they will have a better measure of success. And whether they're more visible today than in other days, there's kind of two facets to that question. The first one is, yes, there are far more platforms that they're visible on. But on the other hand, the audience might be a little bit more fragmented, right? It's not like we're all tuning into NBC at 8 o'clock p.m. to watch one particular broadcaster talking about that, and then we're going to be moving on to the next story about space. Now we can kind of pick and choose stuff and figure out what platforms work best for us. So I'm, for example, biased for Twitter, but other people are biased for Instagram. Other people are biased for TikTok, and that just happens to be the various people. We can't do everything, right? Yeah. And so... There's that challenge of trying to reach people, but also to be doing it in a multiplicity of platforms. And so I'm not sure if they're more visible, but they definitely have different challenges than somebody working even 15 or 20 years ago when I was getting trained in journalism. I mean, social media, what's social media? Facebook's going to kill your career. You know, that was the attitude that I got back then. So quite, <laughs> quite different now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think you nailed it. I do find it interesting, though. Obviously, as I said earlier, I'm an Apollo enthusiast. But I do struggle sometimes to name the CEOs of some of the major contractors for the Apollo program. But the CEOs of the private companies aiming to be involved with Artemis are household names. I think social media definitely has a big part to do with that. But, of course, their egos as well. Anyway, uh, moving on. I'm fascinated to know what you've got coming up next. Last time we spoke, you just released a fantastic book about Mars. And I read almost all of your Space.com articles, so I know you're really busy. But... Any other big projects on the horizon? Yes, actually, if you go and talk to me in maybe about a year or so, Dave and I are working on another book about space medicine. And so that's very much in the early stages right now. But again, think about the implications. If we're going to be sending people to the moon and living there regularly, there are going to be a lot of questions about how to be doing that for a long period. The Apollo years, as exciting as they were and as exciting as they continue to be, the astronauts were only out on the surface for about three days at most. Now we're talking about maybe weeks or months, and that's a whole different other kind of challenge, right? You got to think about the radiation. You got to think about the gravity issue. You got to think about the distance issue, the isolation issue. And so what we're doing is we're looking at the International Space Station and other related programs to kind of give us some thoughts. And of course, we're also leaning very heavily upon uh, Dave's very, very extensive medical expertise because he's worked with people in orbit. He's worked with people underwater. You know, he's worked with people um, all over the world in different languages. And uh, that really has been helpful. And we'll also bring in some more voices that are really, really talented in the space medicine facets and maybe some other fields as well. And so uh, keep an eye out and we'll certainly uh, keep you posted as that gets a little bit closer to a publication. Oh, fantastic. Is that going to focus on the history of medicine in space or where we're at now uh, or, or what the challenges of the future are? What's what's the remit? All of it. Every single one of it. Yeah, Brilliant. exactly. Because I, I think that... It, fantastic. Yeah, it's, it's one of those things that you can't just attack from one angle. There's so much to discuss. And yeah. I mean, you could probably do a whole series of books about space medicine because think about all the different challenges that are being faced. Yeah, I'm looking forward yeah. to this one. Really looking forward to that. Uh, I'm pretty sure someone will tell me if I'm wrong, but I don't know of uh, another book about space medicine. I've definitely not read it. So I wish you all the best with that. And uh, I'm sure we'll talk when that comes out. But uh, thank you very much once again for joining us on Space and Things. Thank you for having me back. Did the crew confirm that they got that maneuver update okay? That's affirmative. Roger. I tell you what. She is a workaholic, 
I didn't realize that she'd actually written that other book, uh, The Canada Arm and Collaboration, How Canadian Astronauts and Space Robots Explore New Worlds. In November 2020, that got released. So wow. within a year, she's released three books and she's starting another one. Yeah, that's a lot. That's a lot of work. I'm really impressed because, uh, yeah, there's no way I could be doing that <laughs> yeah. right now. That's a lot. Um, yeah, that sounds really interesting as well to read about the uh, history of the Canada arm and how uh, it really helped usher in the Canadians as a power in the space program. That's a really cool topic. So I'd like to read that one as well. Yeah, I'm not going to lie. I looked that up on Amazon afterwards. (laughs) I was like, is that on sale? Which is how I found out when it came out. I thought she meant it was coming out, but it had already been out. Yeah, I need that one. That that really sounds cool. Um, I really like the example she brought up of the the Avro scientists or the Avro workers who are in Canada, because that's not a story that really gets brought up a lot. But uh, I want to say, even though he wasn't Canadian, he was he was British. I, I think John Hodge came from uh, that group of people up there. And he, of course, ended up becoming a, one of the first flight directors at NASA. So he was kind of a big deal for that whole program, really. I mean, he was one of the first big leaders there. And uh, recently he did pass away. I think he was 92 or yeah. something well, like that. You've just joined some dots for me in my head because I was thinking and I was going to ask, I was thinking, I wonder how John Hodge fit into this, like where where he fell into obviously we spoke about the canadians getting yeah. recruited and the germans we know about and in my head i was like we had that one british guy uh, <laughs> yeah <laughs> but i didn't want to bring it up at that point but you have just joined that dot for me we had that one guy yeah <laughs> yeah i think he was living in canada at the time and he was working on the the avro project and that got canceled which was an awesome project but it just got canceled and he was like well what the heck am i gonna do and then nasa was like Hey, we need some people. And he was like, okay, you know, and he ended up becoming one of the first really, I mean, flight directors are, uh, she did discuss people like Glenn Lunny, you know, and um, some of the more, I guess, I hate to say it because I love Gene Kranz. He's awesome. But if you watch Apollo 13, the movie, you're going to think Gene Kranz was the flight director of the entire mission. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, whereas, um, you know, Glenn Lenny was a big part of it. Uh, there were a lot of people who were involved in that. So uh, I'm really glad she brought people like that up because they don't get quite as much attention as, you know, n- not to diss Gene Kranz by any means. He's an awesome guy. Yeah, it's a tough tough thing to say that, isn't it? Because obviously, you know, at no point are you saying he's he's not worthy of the accolades, but you just want to point out the other ones as well. And, and it can come across like you're... you're you're hammering down on someone when you're not at all. You're just yeah. trying to point out, you no, know, other people existed as well and they were doing the same job as well in or differently. Uh, and it's important that you point those out things out as well. Uh, I, I think this book is really interesting because NASA is a fantastic study in leadership. I mean, I, th- I think we know that anyway, but the way they've gone about this book with the little bullet points at the end of every ch- chapter of, of what you can learn from these different stories, and it goes through the highs and the lows. And I think that's where it's such a, a useful case study is it's not all been glory for NASA, has it? No, I don't want to linger too much on it, but they've had some leadership failures, definitely, yeah. where... They, there have been decisions made that are just like, why did they go with this? You know, and it, it is important to study those things. It definitely is. I mean, it, it's important to go over, okay, wh- why was this a, not the greatest decision? You know, what can we do to mitigate this kind of thing in the future? 
you know, how can we better look at an entire situation and not do this? And I think it also is very humbling to the normal person to see, okay, the people that put a man on the moon or people on the moon also make mistakes and they get it wrong sometimes, but they try and learn from their mistakes. And and it's that process, which I think is really important that we can all learn from. Yeah, absolutely. I think all of us can learn from any of our past mistakes. I mean, even I'm a proofreader at my day job and, you know, sometimes I make mistakes (laughs) there. You know, I'm not perfect, but it, it it's good to go over those things with your boss just so you know, okay, I won't do this again. Or, you know, maybe I could look at this differently next time. Yeah. I try not to look at it as like a negative, really, as much as, okay, this is a learning opportunity. Yeah, it is kind of reassuring to know that NASA hasn't always got it perfect and that they have a ways. There are things that they could learn from. You know, it's absolutely a bit of a comfort that, you know, okay. Not everybody's perfect. We all screw up, you know? <laughs> yeah. And and uh, as far as you're aware, Emily, is there a book on space medicine? There is a book about space medicine on Skylab. Okay. I, I have it. It's enormous. It's like a compilation of articles about certain things on Skylab only, but right. that's the only one I'm aware of. I, I, I'll just be real. I haven't read the whole thing because it's very, <laughs> it's for doctors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah, for yeah. people who are like in that field, and it's from nineteen set like seventy eight or something like that. So it might be a little out of date by now. But um, I'm really interested to learn more about the history of space medicine because I don't really know much about anything before. Oh God, I'm gonna get dinged again. I don't know much <laughs> about anything before Skylab in that area i do know they did at the beginning they didn't really know what would happen to people in space i do know that you know there was a lot of concern like you know what's gonna happen is there are their eyes gonna work properly you know Uh, but i don't know anything much about specific experiments they may have run yeah it's it's a fascinating i mean it's such a huge subject as you said it could be volumes because just off the top of my head i'm thinking the stuff they did at the loveless clinic is really interesting and the space sickness when that was first experienced like what did they think it was what they think caused it how has that developed are we any better at it now all those kind of things it's 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 such a big topic so if they can make a book as accessible as the other two books i have read of elizabeth's then i am very excited about this book because i think there's so much to learn and and I love reading about all this stuff from a different point of view that I'd not considered. And, and this is certainly one of them. Yeah, I can't wait to read that one just because, um, like I said, uh, I do have a volume about space medicine on Skylab, but it's it's very much written for doctors or for yeah. people in the medical community. And me trying to read it, I'm like, I don't understand any of this. <laughs> I understand very basic stuff. It'll be nice to see it written in real people language. Absolutely. For sure. Anyway, the full unedited version of that video with Elizabeth is up in video form on our Patreon page, which is patreon.com forward slash space and things. And to find out more information on that book and Elizabeth's other work, visit our show notes either in your podcast provider or on our website, spaceandthingspodcast.com. You're listening to the Space and Things Podcast with Dave Giles and Emily Carney. All right, so we have three launches to tell you about this week. Uh, I'm going to go out of order this week because the first one is the most exciting and I want to build some suspense. I know, I know. Uh, I'm such a tease. Anyway, on Thursday, the 17th of June, SpaceX launched a Falcon 9 from Cape Canaveral, as they do, delivering a GPS satellite. Uh, GPS is one of those things that I feel like we take for granted, but it's all... 
down to the space program at the end of the day. We all use it all the time. I actually think we should probably do an episode on it one day, even though it might seem like a boring subject. I'm pretty sure what we would uncover would be quite fascinating. Anyway, that's just me thinking out loud. On Friday, 18th of June, the China Aerospace Science and Technology Corporation or CASC, uh, launched a Long March 2C-E rocket, placing four satellites into orbit, including another one of those horribly named Apocalypse Communication Satellites. <laughs> Why would you do that? Uh, I'm wondering if that's a G- is that a GPS satellite? What <laughs> yeah. is this GPS thing too, you know? But the big launch that Dave was talking about on Thursday, June 17th, was also from CASC. China launched a Long March 2F-G rocket, which was their seventh crewed mission, as they carried three of the China National Space Administration, or CNSA, Taikonauts, on the first flight to Tianhe-1, which is the core module of China's new Tiangong space station. There were three men on board, Commander Ni Haxing, who is on his third space flight, uh, Lu Boming, who makes his second flight, and rookie Tang Hongbo will stay up at the station for three months to test all the systems in the module and get them up and running. It's the first Chinese crude... You did such a great job there, Emily. Thank on you. On those pronunciation. Thank you. Absolutely smashed it. Thank you. Talking of space stations, there have been two spacewalks at the International Space Station over the last week to install the first of six new solar arrays. Tomar Pesquet of the European Space Agency and Shane, and Shane Kimbra of NASA. So you do all the complicated ones and I can't even say Shane. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's okay. It's been they, a long week. It, it certainly has. They spent a combined 13 hours and 43 minutes outside on their two spacewalks and they appear to have been successful. The old solar arrays have well exceeded their 15-year expectations lifespan and power output has been decreasing from them but the new ones which will be installed in front and partially over the top of the old ones will be used in tandem with the old ones providing 20 to 30 percent more power for the station a long overdue upgrade for the station talking of exceeding expectations the mars helicopter ingenuity completed its eighth flight this week it flew for 77.4 seconds, covering 525 feet or 160 meters. Originally, it was only intended to fly five times, but it's doing a great job, so the people at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory are keen to keep it going. Although a ninth flight has yet to be announced, it's been rumored that as long as it keeps working, they'll try and do one or two more flights per month for the next few months to try and move along with the Perseverance rover in Jezero Crater to see how rovers and aircraft can work together to conduct science work. And while we're talking about science in space, there has been a problem on one of our all-time great achievements, the Hubble Space Telescope. Uh, I'm going to read the NASA statement, which says, The Hubble operations team is working to solve the payload computer issue on board the Hubble Space Telescope. The team is working to collect all the data available to them to isolate the problem and determine the best path forward for bringing the computer back to operation. At this time, there is no definitive timeline for bringing the computer back online. However, the team has multiple options available to them and are working to find the best solution to return the telescope to science operations as soon as possible. Launched in 1990, Hubble has contributed greatly to our understanding of the universe over the past 30 years. Let's hope they can get it fixed. It's a 1980s computer, though. It's crazy that that thing is still 
up there yeah. uh, and doing anywhere near what it's been doing. Uh, I think my friend, and I'm, I hope I'm not destroying his name. If I am, uh, if you're listening, I apologize. Uh, I have a friend, Johannes Kampanen. Uh, he's from Finland, and he uh, is a space historian, and he put up a picture of a technician's grind in the mirror on Hubble. And the picture is from 1981, which tells you how long ago they were actually making the telescope. We're really talking about something that was designed in the 70s. I mean, granted, it's gone through a lot of upgrades, upgrades, but um, that's really an incredible amount of time for any satellite to work. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's a long, long time. Th- think about your own laptop I mean, or computer. It doesn't last that long, does it? They no, never seem get- to last more than five or six years before you need to think about an upgrade. Yeah, I, I think I got my last one to like, five years and it just and the power supply or no no i know what i did do it i I actually like uh i'd written so much on it i'd like mess the keyboard like the Uh. keyboard was starting to come apart (laughs) like you said you know you got a laptop you know five years it's coming apart you know i mean hubble's been together for i mean granted it didn't have a great beginning i i remember when they first launched it when i was a kid it was like the butt of every late night joke because it had so many problems, but eventually it became one of NASA's biggest triumphs. So yeah. more power to it, and I hope I hope they get this fixed. Yeah, 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 exactly. Elsewhere, India have announced that their human spaceflight plans are continuing to move forward, and that their first crewed launch may take place in 2023. Turkey have announced that they're aiming to send a rocket to the moon in 2023 but are trying to launch their own rover there before the end of the decade. China and Russia have invited partners to join them in building a moon base, but have revealed there are no plans to send people there this decade. The International Lunar Research Station will have a space station in lunar orbit, a base on the surface, and a set of rovers and robots. In a statement at the Global Space Exploration Conference in St. Petersburg, Russia, on June 16th, officials said that negotiations had started with international partners, including ESA, Thailand, the United Arab Emirates, and Saudi Arabia. I think that's a fascinating development, that. Be interesting to it see, is. especially seeing as ESA signed up to Artemis as well. It's, you know, they're kind of playing both fields, if that's true. I like it. Yeah. Yeah. We'll see. It is kind of interesting. Um, it's been a while since we spoke about Starship. But SpaceX are preparing for their biggest test flight to date. CEO Elon Musk tweeted a photo of the company stacking one of the super heavy booster rockets, which will be needed for the first orbital flight test. No date has yet been set, but this could be by the end of July. But with how these things pan out, I doubt that somehow. Um, But there are two stages in this test. Uh, launching from their Boca Chica launch facility in Texas, the first stage booster will come down six minutes after launch, about 20 miles from the Texas coast in the Gulf of Mexico, while the upper stage will make its way into orbit and attempt a soft splashdown about 60 miles from Hawaii. Awesome. Yeah, I know. That'll be neat to watch. Absolutely. And talking of launches to get excited for, Boeing is prepared to launch an uncrewed Starliner capsule to the ISS on July 30th, on top of an Atlas V rocket, which has this week arrived at Kennedy Space Center. If this mission goes well, they will be targeting their first crew launch later this year with astronauts Barry Wilmore, Nicole Mann, and Mike Fink. Yeah, this is the second one of those, I believe. It's be the second uh, uncrewed one, which does pave the way for that, that crewed one later this year. 
yeah, let's hope this one goes pretty well. The The last one had some issues, but they're doing the right thing and they're setting up another one. So let's just hope this one goes pretty well. I, I have faith it will. Yeah, me too. Me too. Something to look forward to anyway. And finally, a little bit of ridiculousness to end. Well, that's not a word, <laughs> but never mind. NASA are asking for help <clears throat> to name a mannequin that they'll be sending to the moon as part of the Artemis 1 test flight in a competition they've dubbed Name the Moonakin. That's also not a word. <laughs> anyway, uh, with a series of votes on Twitter, they're trying to pick a winner by the 28th of June. So, so far in the quarterfinals or round one, Ace beat Wargo, Delos beat Duhart, Campos beat Shackleton. And as we're recording this, it's currently neck and neck between Montgomery and Regal to see who takes the <laughs> final place in the semifinals. This time next week, we'll be able to report to you the final winner. And I am sure that you cannot wait to find out the result. I like Shackleton. I'm sorry. Yeah, I, I really like that. I know it's kind of a nod to the British... Uh explorer but i i really like that because uh shackleton crater and for all mankind yeah. i don't know <laughs> i thought that was really cool so i was hoping for that but that's okay maybe mannequin mcmannequin or something manny yeah. mcmannequin i'm annoyed there's not one of those i'm annoyed there's <laughs> not something yeah or mannequin mannequin skywalker like uh blue origin of used that, that, that yeah. was a great one that was awesome all right yeah these, these are all a little bit stuffy aren't they but i would have taken shackleton for sure Yes, I agree. Hey, congratulations. This is real good. And that's it for this week. We're currently preparing some shows to release while I'm at Space Fest and Air Venture so we don't miss a week. And we've got some amazing stuff lined up, so stick around and make sure you've subscribed. Thanks to those who hit the share button or who have gotten in contact recently on social media. It's always great to hear from you. Yeah, it's going to be an exciting few months, that's for sure. Uh, so thanks for listening this week, but don't forget, in space, no one can hear you stream. Space and Things has been brought to you by And Things Productions.